Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, for it is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you, God, that you've allowed us once again, as you have for a year now, to continue to gather like this on Sunday mornings as a church family, to worship you and to hear from you through your word. I pray that to that end, you would speak to us now. I pray that you would open our ears and eyes and hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. God, there are many of us who, who need, are longing to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak. I pray that you would speak clearly through me. I pray that the truth of who you are and the good news of your gospel would ring out clearly in these moments. Thank you for giving us your word, that we might know you better and love you better. And I pray that you would bless this time that we spend studying it together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, once again, good morning. So good to be back with you uh, once again like this. Um, today is Palm Sunday. It is the, we're kicking off Holy Week, uh, and this is like Super Bowl week for the Christian church. Uh, so Palm Sunday is today. If I had a palm branch, uh, I would wave it around. It is the day that we memorialize and remember uh, Jesus arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover when he rode into the city uh, on a donkey, uh, ultimately to his crucifixion and then resurrection three days later. Um, so to that end, our text today is about the triumphal entry. So we're in Luke. Luke chapter 19, we're going to read verses 28 through 44. Again, Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. If you're looking that up in a paper Bible, that's great. If you're not, we'll put it up on the screen like we do every week, and you can follow along as I read. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. It says, And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in, on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was about 1130 on a Friday night. I was sitting in a car with a handful of my roommates and best friends uh, in college, and we were sitting in a parking lot adjacent to a Denny's, a Denny's that was open 24 hours a day. There was another car 
parked in the Denny's parking lot right in front of the front door that was also full of friends and roommates from college. Now, some of you will know that in many, many times in a group of friends, there is the one. You know who I'm talking about. The one who uh, loves to be the center of attention, the one who uh, loves to do anything, try anything, say anything to get a laugh. You know the one I'm talking about. I was not the one, but he was in the car. He was in the other car that was parked in front of the Denny's. And so we were sitting adjacent in the parking lot adjacent, and we're watching that car, and we watched as he got out of that car and walked into the Denny's restaurant, a pretty full Denny's for 1130 on a Friday night with a megaphone in his hand. He walked into the lobby and he lifted that megaphone to his mouth. And though we couldn't hear it, we knew what the plan was. And he said something along the lines of, everybody listen up. I need a table for four and it needs to be a booth. Even as I'm telling the story, I'm like, you do dumb things when you're a kid. You do dumb things when you're a college kid. What I have failed to say up to this point is that this guy, my friend, had done this exact same thing in this exact same restaurant at the same time one week earlier. So they were ready for him on this night. So we're watching him go into the restaurant, lift the megaphone up to his mouth. And as he does, one of the employees of that restaurant grabs the megaphone out of his hand. Another employee runs out the front door and sits on the hood of the car that he just got out of and all of our other friends were still in. We watch for a few minutes as he has a heated argument or exchange with whoever it was that took the megaphone out of his hand and will not give it back. And unfortunately, a few minutes later, two police cruisers pull into that Denny's parking lot. The officers get out. They go into the restaurant. They begin talking to our friend. Again, we're just sitting in a parked car in the next parking lot over watching this through the windows. Uh, when, when suddenly to our horror, actually it wasn't suddenly, they talked for a while, to our horror, our friend turns around and puts his hands behind his back. The officer puts handcuffs on him, leads him out, puts him in the back of the squad car. We spent the next several hours at the police station that night, and uh, unfortunately, it cost us $180 to get him out, which for a half dozen college kids was not an insignificant financial hit. Now, I am not trying to give anyone any ideas this morning, but what I want us to get from that story, what I want us to see from that story is this. Uh, what my friend did that night demanded a response. It was so flagrant, it was so audacious, it was so loud and annoying that those poor workers in that Denny's restaurant that night, they couldn't ignore it. They couldn't just pretend it wasn't happening. They had to act. They had to do something. What he did demanded that they respond. We all know what's that, what that's like. We all know what it is like to be put into situations where we have to respond, where we don't have a choice. We are forced to respond. Now, this is not a sermon on parenting. But for anyone out there who has children, you know this to be true. Because one of the most dangerous tactics when it comes to raising children is the ultimatum or the threat. And I've been doing it for 11 years and I still haven't learned this lesson. You would, you would think that I had by now. But we all know that when you make an ultimatum or a threat to your child, you are setting yourself up. Because why? Because when you say, if you do that one more time, Dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever it is. If you do that one more time, I'm going to, or you're going to have to, or whatever it is. When you do that, 
you are, you, are, you are putting your integrity and your parenting character on the line. Because if they do it again, you have to respond. It demands a response. And so you better be ready to follow through on what you said if they are going to do it again. It demands a response. It, it does, it's not just with parenting. You know, you, if you have a friend who um, casually insinuates that they can beat you at something that is your thing, I don't care what it is, video games, hoops, golf, gardening, whatever it is, if they casually insinuate that they can do it better than you, you got to respond. You're forced to respond. It demands a response. When the toilet starts to overflow, you can't just ignore that. You can't just wait and take care of it later. It demands a response in the moment. When the IRS sends you a letter, it demands a response. I mean, I guess you don't have to, but that's not a good decision. Uh, when your boss sends an email, usually that demands a response. We are very familiar in our everyday lives with situations that demand for us to respond to them. But here's the thing. We don't really like that. Generally, for most of us, we don't really like being put into situations where we are forced to respond. We don't like to be put into situations where we don't have a choice but to respond, but to act, because we like to be in control. We like to choose when we're going to do something and how we're going to do something. We like to choose when we're going to act, how we're going to act, when we're going to react, how we're going to react. And so we generally do not like being put into situations where we're forced to respond. Just think about those poor, again, those poor employees in that restaurant that night. They weren't looking for trouble. They didn't want to have to call the police on someone, but they were forced to respond. We don't like to do that because we like to have control. We like to feel like we're in control. We like to be the kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And if I can just bring this long rambling introduction a little bit closer to home for those of us who are attending an online church service this morning, this is the reason a lot of us struggle with God because we don't like to be forced to respond. We don't like when we are not, when we don't like it when we don't feel like we are the king or the queen of our little kingdom. But if God is who he says he is, if he is the true king, and there is only room for one on the throne, then what that means is that we are not the ones who are sitting on the throne. And sometimes when we are in relationship with God, when we are, when we are trying to figure out who God is, we are forced to respond. As I said earlier, uh, we're starting Holy Week today. This is Palm Sunday. It is the day that we memorialize uh, the day that Jesus, along with thousands of other Jewish pilgrims going to the city of Jerusalem for the Passover, entered into the city for the last week uh, before his crucifixion. And I do not believe there is any other event in the life of Jesus that we get in the Gospels that holds the tension that I just described so well or, or, or brings to surface the tension that I just described as well as the events of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It demonstrates the tension between Jesus' claims about himself and our own ideas about how we want our lives to look. And so as we look at this passage that I just read today, I believe if we can get a, 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 a basic understanding of the historical and cultural context of what is actually happening as Luke records it, and actually every other gospel writer does. This, this event, all four gospel writers record it. If, if we can get a historical and cultural idea of what is going on here, I think the message, I think we're going to see the message that Luke is conveying to us, or rather the message that Jesus is conveying to us through the author Luke of this gospel is this. He demands a response. 
Jesus demands a response. Now, for a lot of us, especially those of us who've been around the church for a while, that sounds harsh. We don't like that. Jesus, we don't like a Jesus who demands things. That's not the Jesus that we're used to. We're used to a, a mild, meek, humble, lowly Jesus. He loves little kids. He doesn't, make, he doesn't make demands. He makes offers. But I believe the message of this text, and I'm going to do my best to explain why, is that Jesus demands a response to him. So as we come to this, the, Jesus and his disciples have just left Jericho down in, the, down in the Judean Valley, and they're heading up to Jerusalem, like I said, with thousands of other Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And I just, I just imagine the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples as they are walking that trek towards Jerusalem. I imagine one of his disciples saying to him, Now, Jesus, uh, you know traffic is going to be horrible going over the Mount of Olives. I was thinking, we were all talking, we were thinking maybe we could cut off early and take the southern route through the Valley of Hinnom and see if maybe we can avoid some of the traffic jams and crowd that you know are going to be on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is like, nope, uh, we actually have to go over the Mount of Olives today. There's no question about it. We're going over the Mount of Olives. He goes, and actually, on our way there, I'm going to need you to go pick up a colt, a donkey, so that I can ride that donkey into the city. That's the first half of our text. The disciples do that. They go and find it just as he said. They bring this donkey, this colt to him. He gets on it and he begins to, to follow along with the crowds. He begins to come over the Mount of Olives towards the city of Jerusalem. Why? Why is it happening that way? We need to go back to the Old Testament for just one moment. Uh, there's an Old Testament book called Zechariah. He was a prophet in the Old Testament. God spoke to him and through him and he prophesied about what the true son of David, the coming heir, the coming uh, king who was going to be of the line and house of David, he prophesied a few things about how that king, that son of David, that Messiah could be recognized. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And just a few chapters later, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says this. Speaking of the day that God will finally defeat his enemies, it says, On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So the prophet Zechariah, probably 500 years before the moment that Jesus is in, in our passage today, he said, you will know the Messiah has come when he appears on the Mount of Olives and rides in on a, on a colt. And as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem in our passage that we are reading today here, he is intentionally orchestrating the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about himself. And we have to understand how this would have been understood in the moment. It's so easy for us, especially because Zechariah says it in chapter 9. Uh, he, he's humble. And, and mounted on a donkey. So we, we look at this, this event and we think this is so like Jesus. He just, he's just humbly coming in on a donkey, you know, trying not to make a stir, uh, trying to kind of fly under the radar, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is orchestrating the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about himself. Here he is, right, coming down the Mount of Olives, 
riding on a donkey, with, on a colt, donkey, with a th thousands of other pilgrims coming into the city of Jerusalem. And what we need to understand is that pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover were expected to walk into the city. Even those who had ridden animals, even the, the elderly or those who were disabled, they would, they would get off of their animals and someone would help them walk or they would literally crawl into the city because they were expected to come on foot into the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus riding on a colt in the midst of this enormous crowd sticks out like a sore thumb. The other thing that we need to know is that in, the, in, the, in that culture, in, that, those, the, in the biblical times, kings rode horses when they went to war and when they entered into a city that they had conquered. Kings rode donkeys when they came in peace or when they came into a city that was already theirs. So this is not meek and mild Jesus just trying to fly under the radar and be, not be seen by the Jewish and Roman authorities as he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is a planned and calculated demonstration that is not ambiguous at all. Jesus is riding toward Jerusalem with a megaphone saying, I am the true son of David. I am the rightful king and I come in peace because this kingdom is already mine. I love the way Tim Keller talks about this event. He says it so succinctly. Jesus is saying in this moment, crown me or kill me. He is making a flagrant and an unambiguous statement about who he is and what he claims to be. I am the true son of David. I am the rightful king and I am coming in peace because this is already mine. And what those actions demand are a response. He cannot be ignored or brushed aside. Jesus, as, as, as he partakes in this triumphal entry, is making claims that cannot be ignored. He is making claims that demand a response because Jesus demands a response. It was Pastor A.W. Tozer who said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, very famously this line. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the message that Jesus was giving all of those people who witnessed that, that what happened during that triumphal entry 2,000 years ago is the same message he is giving us today. Jesus is asking us, what comes into your mind when you think about me? I am the true king and you must deal with that claim. I am God. Crown me or kill me. He is demanding a response. And again, if that sounds harsh, I, I understand that. But I believe so much that it is the clear message of this passage and the actions that he took on that day. He does not give us the option to ignore him or to put him in a box. His claims are too bold, they're too flagrant, and they are too obvious, they are too intrusive. Jesus Christ demands a response. And part of the reason that I'm so confident that that is what Luke is communicating to us in this passage is because for the rest of the passage that we are going to look at, he gives us three responses of the people who were there that day and witnessed what happened. So the rest of this sermon, we're going to talk about what those responses to the actions of Jesus that day looked like and what they could mean for us. They're three R's. I wasn't going to tell you all at once, but I just I'm so proud of them that they're three R's. I just feel like I need to share that now. The first response is recognition, recognize, the second is rebuke, and the third is reject. So recognize, rebuke, and reject. So the first, the first response we see in this text from the people who were with Jesus that day is they recognize. 
they recognize what's going on. We see this in verses 37 and 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, when it says the whole multitude of his disciples, it's not just talking about the 12. It's talking about the crowd. Here's Jesus riding on the donkey. They're throwing their cloaks down in front of him. Luke doesn't talk about it, but other, other gospel writers do. They're waving palm branches. They're saying, they're saying, Hosanna. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are praising and they are rejoicing. They get it. They are picking up what he is laying down. When they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. And what we need to know is that pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover would say that verse, Psalm 118, 26, to each other as they arrived in the city. It was like a refrain that they said to each other, but it's slightly different in Psalm 118, 26. Psalm 118 and what the pilgrims would say to each other says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here, this crowd that sees what Jesus is doing, they see the cult, they see the Mount of Olives, they see the works that he has been doing. And they don't say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize Jesus as the true king and Messiah as Lord and Savior. Now, is it possible that some of the people in the crowd that day who were shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, five days later, were shouting, crucify him. Absolutely. And there is a point to be made about that in another sermon for another day. But we also have to take Luke's text at face value and, and understand that there were people there that day who saw what was going on and, and recognized what Jesus was saying. And they responded by recognizing who he is. There is no doubt that Luke is showing us that there were people then and there who saw what Jesus was claiming and responded by recognizing it. And we can do the same thing today. We can look at who Jesus is. We can look at the cult and the Mount of Olives. We can look at the works that he has done. We can look at the, the evidence for the claims that he makes. And we can say, I believe. We can say, I believe that you are the king. I believe that you are God. I believe that you are the true son of David who was promised in the Old Testament and came in the new. We can say along with that crowd, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And just side note, that's what Jesus was aiming at. That's the response that he was aiming at. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So part of the crowd that day recognized who he was. There were other folks in the crowd who seeing what Jesus was doing and the claims that he was making and the response that he demanded, they responded by rebuking him. We see that in verse 39. It says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now I know, and those of us who've been around church for a while know this, the Pharisees do not have a good look in the New Testament. They, they, are, the, they are the group of people that Jesus is the harshest with and rightfully so from what we know about them. But we also have to acknowledge that there are moments throughout the Gospels where the, the Pharisees' response to Jesus is not totally clear. There's some ambiguity about what they think and how they're responding to him. And Luke gives us several of those in his Gospel, and I believe this is one of them here. Why do I say that? Because here's Jesus, the crowd is, 
is worshiping him as the true son of God, the true son of David. And the Pharisees who are there basically say to him, don't let them say that about you. Stop them. They shouldn't be saying that about you. So there's the rebuke. And even though it says they're rebuking his followers, it's really a rebuke of him. But notice how they address him. They address him as teacher, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew word rabbi. And that was a title that especially for the Pharisees held a, a, a large amount of respect. They don't call him dude. They don't say, hey, man. They don't say, hey, traitor. They don't say, hey, imposter. They don't say, um, hey, heretic. Tell these people to stop. They say teacher. They say rabbi. And they, I believe, that they are seeing the same things as the crowd. They're seeing the cult, the Mount of Olives. They've seen how Jesus has been over the last three years. They've seen the works that he has done. They've seen his kindness and his compassion. They've seen his knowledge of God and the scriptures and the way he's answered their questions. And they recognize that something is here, that something is going on, and they are willing to give him some level of respect, but they can't or won't fully recognize who he is. Do you know what this is? It's the good moral teacher response. It's Jesus was being as clear as he could be. And the Pharisees are like, you, you can't go that far. You can come this far, but you can't go that far. Here is your box. Please stay in it. But Jesus obliterates any boxes we try and put him in. And I just love the way he responds in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's saying creation itself recognizes who I am. The problem with the good moral teacher response is that Jesus does not leave that open as an option. And I don't think anyone has said it better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in what is a widely used and famous quote. This is what C.S. Lewis says about that. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it to. And I think the text we're looking at today is exhibit A for why God, why Jesus does not leave the optional, the response of a good moral teacher as an option. So many of us respond like this. So many of us respond like the Pharisees in this text. We see the things that Jesus has done. We see the works. We see the books that have been written about him. We see our calendar is organized around his life. We recognize that there is something going on here, but we are not ready to get off of the throne of our own lives. Why? Because it is hard. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like submitting to a king who is not us. And so, like the Pharisees, we rebuke him. We say, you can only come so far. Look, Jesus, we like your teaching about love and kindness and grace and forgiveness. But don't come in here telling me about dying to myself and living for others and living my life as a sacrifice and getting treated poorly and getting walked on and not retaliating. 
please stay in this box. The problem is Jesus cannot be contained in the boxes that we put him in. If we do not recognize and worship him for who he is, the very stones themselves would. So, so, so some people respond by recognizing. Other people that day responded by rebuking. And then a third group of people responded by rejecting. There was one other response, and that was to reject him. Verses 41 to 44 are only found in Luke. Luke's the only gospel writer that records these, this, uh, this part of the story, this part of the triumphal entry. And I think it is beautiful. And it's why I wanted to include it in the text that I was preaching today because uh, I think it is so poignant and gives us such an incredible insight into the heart of God. Here is Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives sits to the east of Jerusalem. It's up higher than Jerusalem. So as you come over that mount, and as you head down into the Kidron Valley, Jerusalem and all of the surrounding countryside is there before you. And here comes Jesus riding on this donkey in a crowd of hundreds or thousands of people worshiping him and praising him and throwing their cloaks down and waving palm branches. And as the city of Jerusalem comes into view, Jesus riding on this colt begins to weep. The, 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 the Greek word there is not like he quietly shed a tear. It's like he wailed loudly. He loses it. He, he breaks down emotionally as the city comes into view as he's heading down the Mount of Olives toward it. Why? Why does he break down? Why is he so broken when he sees the city of Jerusalem? Verse 41 Verse 42, excuse me. He says, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's looking at the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem in these few verses is obviously a personification of the people who are in Jerusalem. And he knows that they are going to reject him. He knows that in a few days they will crucify him. And he's, he, he gives us a word play here in verse 42. He says, would that you have known uh, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jerusalem in Hebrew means city of peace. It's city of shalom. And here he is saying, you do not know peace. He weeps over the city because, verse 44, it did not know the time of its visitation. He's here he is. He's looking at the city of Jerusalem and he's like, the one that you have been longing for, the one that you have been waiting for is here, and you've missed me. You did not know the time of your visitation. So he is not weeping for himself. It's not because his feelings are hurt or because he knows he is going to die. He is weeping because his heart is so broken that the one they had been waiting for, the one they had been longing for had arrived and they missed him. They did not know the time of their visitation. They wanted a different kind of savior a different kind of king. They wanted one who would give them freedom from Rome. He came to give them freedom from sin and death. He came to give them not what they wanted, but what they needed. And his heart breaks because he came to offer them life and they chose death instead. They respond by rejecting him. Uh, think about the story of Robin Hood, at least the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood. You know, good King Richard is away at war and the evil sheriff of Nottingham is running roughshod over the kingdom while King Richard is away, uh, just making life miserable and, uh, and, and really abusing and, and taking advantage of and, and killing King Richard's subjects while he is gone. And imagine 
that that story ended up this way, that King Richard returned for more. Good King Richard, he came back to his kingdom. He came back to, to make it right and to give his subjects freedom and health and life. And as he comes, all those people who have been subject to the evil sheriff of Nottingham say to King Richard, actually, you know what? We're good. We're going to stay with the sheriff. Uh, you've been gone a long time, and we're not even really sure you are who you claim that you are, uh, and we're just going to continue to take our chances uh, with, the, with the oppression, misery, and death that we get from the sheriff of Nottingham. That's what's happening in this story. They have rejected Jesus in, in, in Luke's passage here. They, rejected, they have rejected Jesus saying, we'd rather, we'd rather do it on our own. But he was the savior. He was the one who came to give them life. And they chose death. And, and so many continue to respond to Jesus in this way. Why? Because we want a different kind of savior. We want a different kind of king. We want one who's going to fix our problems and who's going to make our lives easier, who's going to make them more comfortable and, and, and fewer problems and let us call the shots and stay in the box that we want to put him in. But that is not the king that Jesus is. When we come to Jesus, if we respond with number one, recognizing what that may mean is that our life may actually become harder rather than easier. We may have more problems than less. It may become less comfortable. He's going to call the shots. He's not going to stay in the box. But even if he is not the king we want, Jesus is the king that we need. He may not deliver us from Rome, but he is the king who can deliver us from the greater enemies of sin and death. And I just love how these last verses in our passage reveal the heart of God. If it was me and I was rejected by all those people, I would have essentially probably been like, all right, your loss. But he weeps. He weeps over them. This is not the caricature so many of us have of God, who is just this angry, vindictive, mean being who just can't wait to zap people who are sinners, to pour out judgment and wrath on them. This is the God whose heart breaks over those who reject him. It is the God who weeps over those who do not recognize him for who he is. Luke gives us three options, gives us three responses. Jesus demands a response. Some recognize, some rebuke, and some reject. Uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, it's recorded in other gospels too, but earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus is with his immediate 12 disciples. And he asks them, oh, what are other people saying about me? What, do, who are, what are other people saying who I am? And they tell him, they give him a report of what they're hearing and then he turns the question on them. He, he just asks them point, point blank, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I believe that Jesus is asking you and I the same question today. Here we are, eating our Denny's Grand Slam at 1130 on a Friday night, just minding our own business. And here comes Jesus busting into the restaurant, megaphone in hand. And he lifts it up to his mouth and he says, who do you say that I am. So who do you say that he is? Because it is the most important thing about you. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word um, not only encourages us, uh, not only gives us hope, but it convicts us and it challenges us. And I believe that's what this passage that we've looked at today does, God. I pray that you would give us eyes to see who you really are, that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the power to respond to the claims that you make by recognizing 
that you are who you said you are. You are who you say you are. You are the true king. You are the true son of David. You are the Messiah who is coming into the world. You are the one. You are the only one who can save us from the ultimate enemies of sin and death. And we praise you for that. God, we thank you for this week. We thank you for Holy Week. We thank you for what it means. We thank you for what it memorializes. And I pray, God, as we go about our our afternoon and the rest of our day, the rest of our week, that you would keep at the forefront of our mind the, the, the scandalous joy that we experience because you died on the cross and rose again in our place. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, it's been uh, wonderful to be with you this morning. I hope that you'll be able to join us for our Good Friday service this Friday at 6 o'clock. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.